Welcome to the 37 Signals podcast. We've got another Q&A episode. Uh, in case you missed the one we did a couple weeks back, we posted something at Signal vs. Noise asking what topics you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast and then just went through all the comments there in sort of a rapid fire style with Jason and David answering the questions. So let's keep going. Here's uh, part two of the Q&A. All right, Craig wants us to, to talk about uh, security of the cloud. Given public instances of successful hacking, is there a way to demonstrate that data pulled onto an internet server is truly encrypted and password protected? I think that security is absolutely a huge deal because you're dealing with a lot of people's data and we spend a substantial amount of time thinking about all of these things. How can we improve security and so forth? 37ID upgrade the security heavily on our passwords and so on. But with all that being said, I think the most insecure part in this whole cloud thing is your computer. Most people have terrible security on their home computers. They send way too much shit back and forth over email unencrypted. They don't store uh, sensitive documents on their hard drive on encrypted drives. They do a lot of things that are incredibly insecure. And then they stress about, hey, what's the security of, of my cloud application? The likelihood is that your applications are going to be, or your documents or secure information are going to be stolen off your computer, not anybody else's. If you're running Windows, you probably have malware right now stealing your shit. So worry about that. Get virus uh, scanners. Start encrypting your stuff on your local drives. All these uh, things to improve security on your machine. That's stuff you can actually change and you can worry about right now. Uh, and it's not fact, even just—it's not even just hackers. Like something I see a lot when I go into businesses. I haven't been seeing this late lately as much because I haven't been visiting people as much. But I used to see people with, with like their server, you know, for their whole business with all their sensitive data, just like under a desk somewhere. And then they have a cleaning crew that comes in twice a week or once a week. And, you know, someone could walk out with that computer incredibly easily. You don't even need to hack in. You can just walk out the door with it. So security, local, just because you can see something and you can kick it under your desk and you know what's there does not make it secure. And I think that's the one thing people need to get over. And it's, it's similar to the way, you know, credit cards – People are afraid of sending credit cards over the internet, but they're not afraid of giving their credit card to a waiter at a restaurant who then goes away into a back room with it. I mean, that is so far or so less secure than buying something over the web on Amazon. So I think it's just a matter of perception over time. People get used to it. Oh, well, says in a market where every common small business need is not only serviced by five different SAAS apps, but five very well-designed and implemented ones. He's curious to know how you would go about evaluating an idea for a product and determining how viable it is. Well, if you're going to do the same as everybody else in exactly the same thing, way as everybody else, then obviously don't bother. Come up with an idea that's not always already being serviced by somebody who you think is doing a smashing job. I think there's plenty of categories of applications out there who already have decent applications, but we might very well have a, another idea of how it can be executed. I think this is a key point often where people think, hey, just the guy who gets there first is going to win. No, the guy who gets there first with something awesome is going to win. So um, there's plenty of room in plenty of categories where there's existing applications that just aren't executed as well as you would have done it. I know that that's certainly true for us. We've evaluated a bunch of categories that already have entrants that, uh, that we think we could just do it a ton better. All right. Colin wants to know about success stories of bootstrapped getting real style web apps. Uh, things like Turlix gets for its first 200 paid subscribers, that sort of area. Do you know any blogs like this or other success stories that you think are worth mentioning? 
We should um, do this. Yeah, we should. That's we should be doing idea. this. Yeah, we 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 may just do something like this. So we'll save that uh, answer for maybe our own thing that we do. All right. Um, Alex, would love to hear what you think about co-founders. Is it essential to have one? What's an optimal number of co-founders? How do you spot a great one? Uh, et cetera. Co-founders are a fucking pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) kidding. (laughs) Uh, you know, um, I found a great, like I started 37 signals in 99 with two other co-founders. Uh, and then they left later on. Then David, uh, came in. David, when did you actually like become, well, we can, I mean, technically you're not a founder, but we certainly right. think of you as one. Like, was it 2007, six? No, five. five. 2005, okay. Yep. So since, you know, for about five years now, David and I have been running the company together, and I find it incredibly valuable. Um, most of the advice I've ever gotten, though, has always been don't work with a partner. Um, and I think the reason for that is is because people aren't really good judges of, of partners. And I think in that case, it's very, very difficult. I mean, we see this in marriage. Most people, you know, or at least half get divorced. I mean, if half get divorced and you're like in love with somebody, then, then how bad is it when you're working with somebody else that you don't love in the same way? And, and the idea that you're going to be oh, together. That cuts years. No. <laughs> I, um, I totally agree that yeah. most of this stuff is just, you're not betting the people you're working with and yeah. you choose to work with people who don't share your same fundamental approach to things. So Jason and I disagree on, on tons of stuff, but on the fundamentals, we, we're very much in sync. So you got to find somebody where you have like just a shared set of cultural underpinnings in terms of how, what you think is important, what do you think is important about running a business, and then you can disagree about plenty, plenty after that. But One other thing I, I would I, say is you also probably want to find somebody who complements your skills. So right. I don't think it's smart for two designers to start a, a business together necessarily. You know, but David's in the programming world. I'm more in the design world. So that works really well, I think. I think maybe another thing to add is that you guys didn't start off working together right out of the gate as as co-founders or partners that, you know, you had some time to work together and actually build a product and then see that it was a su- successful relationship and that you got along. And that's when you entered into the formal arrangement. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I think that's actually a, a key good point. Make sure you pick a co-founder that you actually tried out first, that you actually worked on a real project of some kind with so you know who it is. It's kind of like... Uh, going back to the marriage thing, don't get married before you've lived together with somebody. Like they could drive you crazy in a week uh, living with them and you're not going to find out until you're married. Bad idea. All right. And the next question is from Kenny that kind of relates what makes you guys work well. Um, is, do you have an answer to that? Kind of generic the, question. The, the two week or two month cycle. Let's see. Well, yeah. um, what is he actually asking here? He's a, nothing really. <laughs> in, <Okay>. gen, <laughs> in, in general, what makes you guys work well? Uh, I think he's talking about the whole company, though, from from what I'm gathering here. All right. Um, I think that, you know, for the most part, we – well, not for the most part. Hopefully for the whole part. Like, we all respect each other quite a bit. And uh, there's very – there are very few, like, arguments here. Um, if someone's really str- – has a very strong opinion about something uh, and, you know, other people make their point, um, but they just, you know, aren't necessarily as as passionate about a particular topic, they'll let that person have it. And then the next time, maybe they'll get the, the decision instead. I mean, there's a lot of trading trade-offs and going back and forth and just respecting other people's opinions. We, I don't think we've ever had a situation where we've just like headbutted so hard that we can't make a decision. And what we do, actually, we have maybe had a few things like this. We just say, eh, let's just forget it then. We, if we can't agree, let's just forget it. Instead of being really um, 
disagreeable and like just kind of going along with someone even if you completely disagree because then you're not going to really do good work. So I think it's a matter of respecting each other and giving each other the opportunity to, to make decisions and, and go with them and follow along. I don't know. That's kind of a rambling answer actually. But I mean, I think if you're talking about from a team standpoint, definitely hiring becomes a key aspect to that, you know, staying small and growing slow and only bringing people on board when you really need them and you know them and you respect them going in as opposed to just having some HR department that, you know, sticks you with some new person that you don't even know. I mean, it's a very different relationship because of yeah, that. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, that's a good point. Steve R. says, we all have excuses for not having started work on our own business idea. You've heard all of them from the personal, I have no time, to the professional, you need VC funding. Uh, take the excuses you hear the most that you think have the highest believability but are in fact totally not true and explain why they're excuses. That's a good one. Um, I think the I have no time is, is probably one of the key ones. And I think that that's, um, I was just actually on another interview talking about this, the so much bullshit. Like I always go back to the example of how we got started with Basecamp where I had 10 hours per week to work on something. Anybody can find 10 hours per week. Anybody right now is wasting 10 hours per week on something. Either they're watching Lost or they're doing something else where they could change their priorities. There are very few people where they can make a believable case that they cannot carve out 10 hours per week somehow, either by uh, working a little later or earlier or skipping on other hobbies or skip, skipping on, on other things. So the I have no time thing, I have very little respect for that because we're all busy. We all have other things that we want to do. Um, so you can find the time if you want to have the time, but it's comforting. Like it's comforting to have an excuse of why you can't start a business or why you can't start a new project because then, uh, I mean, it's not your fault, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jason, anything to add? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I, I like that one too, The I don't have time. Um, there's also of course the, um, you know, I don't know if there's a market for it or I haven't thought about it enough thing. Um, that one always kind of bothers me too. Um, but I don't really have a, a good reason why other than to say, uh, stop thinking about it and build something, you know, uh, or, yeah, I mean, th that's you know. what I love the most is what are you going to lose? So say you build something that doesn't make it. How is that a loss? You just try to build something. You got a ton of experience actually building it. You probably picked up some skills to, uh, in technology or in design or whatever. Like it's a win-win situation. Even if you fail miserably, you've gained a ton. Because the fact is you're not risking everything and that's the key. Like you're not putting your life savings into this thing just to get it off the ground because you don't need to anymore. So if you're not putting everything on the line, how can you walk away with anything but a, a huge win just in the experience? All right. Next up, Andrew says iPad, Apple, Kindle, Amazon. I would answer that if there was a question mark at the end, but <laughs> not a question. Well, I, I mean, what, what do you th think? What do you think of the iPad that's coming coming up? And uh, if you were Amazon, would you be worried? You know, what's have a big picture? How you feel about the iPad and the impact that it's going to have? I'd absolutely be worried if I were Amazon. The iPad has already infested my mind so badly that just. Yesterday, there was at least two instances of me being out and by thinking, damn, I wish I had an iPad right now. Like, how awesome of a marketing trick is that? Like, the product is not even effing out yet, and you already have people fantasizing about using it. Uh, I'd be very worried if I was Amazon, I gotta be honest, because the thing is, like, the way I use my Kindle is I use it when I travel 
or when I go somewhere where I just want to to read and it works because that's the only device I then then use for this. Like I'm not going to bring both a Kindle and an iPad. I just don't see that. So the Kindle is more convenient to to read longer passages on. I don't read that long anyway. I I don't sit down for eight hours and read. Like I'll read, let's say, an hour or two on a plane or something, and then I want to do something else. Like, the iPad just fits that model a whole lot better than the Kindle. And this is even coming from somebody who loves the Kindle. Like I bought both of the Kindles right away and love the whole electronic reading thing. So the way I see this working out for Amazon is that they get the um, the Kindle reading app on the iPad as soon as possible, and then they care less about the hardware and more about just selling books. All right. Warren Benedetto says he'd like to know how we test our products. What tools did you use to determine uh, which piece of copywriting, say, works over another or what, which layout works better? Are you using Google Website Optimizer or some comparable tool for A-B testing? Just any insight in that area. What do you got? We have used a Google Website Optimizer to do some A-B or multivariate testing, um, specifically around copy, uh, changing the copy on a button or the text above a headline or the headline above a sign-up form. And we've seen some pretty good results from some of that. Some of the results were pretty interesting, in fact. Uh, and we made changes based on that, but we don't uh, we don't test all that often. Maybe we should test more. I'm not I'm not sure. I, I'm sure it could probably benefit us in some ways. But um, for the most part, we we try and write things that we think are good and that are clear and make a lot of sense. Uh, one of the things I'd be concerned about is turning into a test driven company or test driven design company because there's always ways probably to improve your sales by using some sort of techniques that you might see on infomercials. I mean, I look at infomercials and they're cheese ball and, and all these things, but you know, I just know that those things are highly optimized for sales, but I don't want to be a company that sells things that way and uses sensational language. I don't know if that would work or not, but I don't, I don't even want to go down that road. Um, so we kind of don't, don't work in that way, but I do think it's useful occasionally to, to test things. I don't think designers should be afraid of, of seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, but I do think you can kind of get carried away with it as well. Okay. Uger Gundogmas asks, when you don't agree on something, how do you make the final decision? We sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, and usually the one who's most passionate about it wins. I mean, we'll often go on with some pretty lengthy debates back and forth on, on a variety of topics that get all the arguments out in the open. Like, um, We'll talk about something for 10, 15 minutes, and we have a bunch of arguments, and then we'll usually, that'll end it actually, usually we'll come to uh, a common understanding just based on the arguments, uh, but if not, then whoever is most passionate about it has a tendency to win. We used to have this on features where we would think, well, people are not going to understand that, uh, and, and we'd say, well, if you think they are, if you think that they're going to get this feature, okay, fine, we'll do it, but you get to handle all the support. So any support emails coming in on this, you get to handle. I seem to remember this was what happened when I originally proposed OpenID. And uh, both Ryan and Jason were like, OpenID, nobody's going to get that. Uh, so you're going to have to answer the uh, support calls on OpenID. And said, all right, fine, I'll do it. And I did. All right, next up, James wants to know if uh, you plan on doing any college tours this year, any plans on future product integration, and plans on expanding Sortfolio. Um, 
David and I are both speaking at, at a few different schools this year. David just spoke at Stanford. I'm going to be speaking uh, at a few schools, too, uh, locally and, and also out of state. Um, but no sort of formalized college tour. Um, future integration, we're actually going to be working on that. We've already started to work on that in a few areas. So uh, that's, that should be coming this year as well. And plans on ex- expanding portfolio. Um, we just want to stick with what we're good at right now, which is uh, reaching web designers and, and clients who might want to hire web designers. There's a lot of opportunity to expand. You could have photographers up there. You could have designers and all sorts of architects, whatever. But I think for now, we're going to stay focused on web design and see how it does. That's If we can't make it work with web design, we're probably not going to be able to make it work with architects we know less about. All right, that'll wrap it up for this edition of the 37 Signals podcast. That's uh, part two out of three parts of this Q&A session, so stay tuned for the remainder. If you want more information on the podcast or uh, want to see related links from this or previous episodes, go to 37signals.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening.